If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at these now familiar verses again uh, this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 uh, through 31. And you'll remember that uh, two weeks ago we saw that when uh, the council released the apostles, they immediately went to their friends and and told them everything that had happened, how they had been arrested and and how they had, had been put on trial before the very council that had put Jesus to death and how that council had commanded them no longer to preach or to teach in the name of Jesus and how they had threatened them if they failed to comply. And when the apostles' friends heard all of this, they immediately lifted up their voices to God in prayer. And as we saw last Sunday, that prayer really had two parts. The the first part of that prayer was praise. They praised God for who he was. They, They praised him as the sovereign Lord, the creator of all things, the ruler of all history. The one who had accomplished salvation for his people through his son, despite the rage of the nations against his anointed. In fact, he actually used their rage to accomplish his divine plan. And so they praised God for who he was. But then the second part of their prayer was petition. And after praising God for who he was, they they set before him three Petitions. And those petitions are going to be our focus this morning. We'll see first their first petition there in verse 29 when they ask God to look upon the threats of the council. Then their second petition comes in the, the second half of that verse when they ask God to, to grant to them the boldness they will need to continue speaking the word of God concerning Jesus. And then finally their third petition comes in verse 30. When they ask God to continue stretching out his hand to heal through the name of Jesus. And I want us to look at each of these petitions this morning. Because while each of these petitions is specific to the apostles' situation, I think each also teaches us something about how we are to pray to the sovereign Lord. And so let's begin with the first petition. We see it there. The the first thing that the apostles ask the Lord to do is to look upon the threats of the council. As I said, remember, these these Jewish authorities, the, the same authorities that had put Jesus to death, had commanded them no longer to preach or to teach in Jesus' name. And they had threatened them if they failed to comply. Now we're not told exactly what those threats were, but but we know what a threat is. We know that they were warning the apostles that if they, if they failed to listen, if they, if they failed to obey, that they would be arrested, that they would be beaten, even that they would be put to death. We, we know this because this is actually what happens as the story unfolds. And so when the, uh, uh, the apostles told the council in no uncertain terms that they would not obey, the apostles were told exactly what would happen if they failed to obey. These are the threats that the apostles are are referring to when they ask the Lord to look upon their threats. I want to ask you, what would your petition have been if you had been threatened by the council in the same way that the apostles had been threatened? What would you have asked God to do? 
I don't know about you, but I think my petition would have been a little more specific. Uh, my, my petition would have, would have been to ask God to protect me, to ask him to, to frustrate their plans against me. I would have had a very particular outcome in mind when I prayed. And that outcome would have entailed my health and safety. That's what I would have asked God to do if I was in the position of the apostles. But that's not what they ask for. Their petition is much more general. They they don't ask for a specific outcome. They, They simply ask God to look upon the threats of the council. Now, of course, there is an implied request for action in that petition. They, they aren't just asking God to see what is going on. They are, they are asking him to act. They are asking him to, to take note and to respond accordingly. But I think it's significant that they don't tell God what they want him to do. They, they simply want him to act in accord with his own Nature. They, they, they want him to act in accord with the power, the wisdom, and the love that they have already acknowledged by, by referring to him as the, the sovereign Lord, the creator of all things, and the ruler of all history. They, they want him to do with the threats what he deems best. I think we ought to be impressed by the humility of such a prayer. On Wednesday nights, we are studying the the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs calls upon us not to lean on our own understanding. It calls on us to, to trust the Lord with all our hearts and in all our ways to acknowledge Him. Why? Why are, we to, why are we to lean on Him rather than to trust ourselves? Why are we to acknowledge Him as Lord rather than to, to trust our own understanding? Because, as the Proverbs teach us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. There's a way that we think we ought to go, but it doesn't lead where we want to get. There's a way that, that we think looks good, but actually leads to death. And so the Proverbs say, do not trust yourself, do not trust your own wisdom, but acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. And this is the wisdom that is embodied in the Apostles' prayer. They are not wise in their own eyes. They do not presume to know what is best for them personally or even for the church corporately. They do not trust themselves, they trust God. And so rather than asking God for something specific, they simply ask God to act as he sees fit. Now let me say, that that doesn't mean we should never make specific requests. As we'll see in a moment, the the apostles' second petition is quite specific. They they have a very particular outcome in mind. And And so we... We may sometimes make specific requests to God because God's specific will is clear. That's what the apostles are doing here. Jesus had had called them to be his witnesses, and therefore they they could know for certain that that was God's will for their life. That's what God had called them to do, and so they could specifically ask for the boldness they needed to fulfill that Calling. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But they could pray specifically because God's will was, was clear. But we also have freedom to tell God specifically what we want 
in a given situation, even when His will is not immediately clear. We, we see this throughout the Scriptures. When we, when we pray specifically for the, for the healing of a loved one, or when we pray for the, for the protection of some persecuted believer or, or, or missionary, or when we, we pray the, for the success of a very particular adventure, we, we, we ask God for something specific even when we do not know His will specifically. We know what we want. We, we know what we think is best and we make those requests known to God. But sometimes, sometimes we have to acknowledge that, that God's will is different than our will. God, even when we make specific requests, God sometimes isn't inclined to do what, what we want Him to do. Sometimes God's will is not to heal. Sometimes God's will is not to protect. Sometimes God's will is not to prosper. Not because God is not always good, no. God always works all things together for the good of those who who love Him. But God does not always define good the same way we do. He's not always working towards the good that that we have in mind. Rather, He's working towards the good that He has defined. He is is working towards our eternal salvation. He He is working to conform us more and more to the image of the glory of Christ. And therefore, sometimes God's wisdom is not our wisdom. Because His thoughts are not our thoughts. And therefore, when we pray specifically, when we do bring our particular requests uh, before God, we must do so saying, not my will, but yours be done. Even as Jesus did in the garden. See, that's the humility with which we are to pray. We are to pray to God And we are to ask Him to act in accordance with His nature because we trust Him more than we trust ourselves. You see, when we pray, not my will, but yours be done, it is not a way of letting God off the hook. It's not a way of saying, God, I know you might not act, so, you know, and so I won't be too disappointed. I'll just pray your will, not mine, be done. That's that's the way people sometimes use that that phrase. It's a a caveat that sort of gives God an out just in case he decides not to act. But we have to understand that when we pray, not my will, but yours be done, it is not a way of making room for the possibility that God might not act in your best interest. But rather, it's a way of expressing the humility of Proverbs. It's it's a way of expressing that, that understanding that God's wisdom is better than your wisdom. Just think about it for a minute. Do you want God to act in accord with your wisdom or with His wisdom? Whose plan do you want God to follow? As long as we keep the question abstract, I think the answer is pretty obvious. We know that our wisdom is limited and flawed. We, we feel it all the time when we, as we struggle to know what to do in any given situation. We, we know that we don't often know what is best. We know that the way that seems right to us often leads to death. We've experienced it too many times. And so as long as we keep the question abstract, we know that we want God to act in accord with His perfect wisdom and not ours. 
But when the question gets spe specific, our thinking goes fuzzy. Because we know that healing our loved one is best. Because we know that, that prospering our business is best. Because we, we know that removing this thorn in our side is best, or at least it feels that way. It seems that way. It seems so clear that we know what is best. And so in this particular situation, we know exactly what God should do. And it's hard to pray with the humility that says, not my will, but yours be done. And therefore, we must work. We must train ourselves to trust the Lord with all our heart when we pray. We must train ourselves to, to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge Him when we pray. We must learn to emulate the, the apostles' wisdom here, their, their humble wisdom, by asking God to act on our behalf in accordance with His wisdom and love. This is the, the, the beginning of our prayer. We, we pray by acknowledging God to be God and then asking Him to act in accord with His nature. And so the question we must face, the, the question we must ask ourselves is, are we willing to entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father in this way? Are we willing in Jesus' name to, to ask God to act according to His wisdom? Or do we still believe that God is only trustworthy when He uses His power to do our will? That's the question. That's the, the question that the, the Apostles' Prayer challenges us to ask. It's the, it's the question that it forces us to answer. Will we humbly entrust ourselves to our Father, asking Him to act in accord with His wisdom, even when we think we know what is best? It's the first thing that we learn here from the Apostles' Prayer. Are we willing to trust our Heavenly Father? The Apostles' second petition is found in the second half of that verse. There in the, the second half of verse 29. Here the apostles ask God to grant that they might continue to speak his word with all boldness. And I said, this, this petition is different than the first in the fact that it is very specific. It is, it is a particular request. They are asking God to do something in particular. And so the apostles are, are asking for a specific outcome. They, they are asking for the boldness to preach the gospel. They are asking that their courage to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and salvation in His name, they are asking that their courage might not falter. And as I said, they, they are able to make this request. They are able to be so bold as to ask for a very specific outcome because God's will in this matter is clear. Jesus had specifically commissioned them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and, and, and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As Paul said of himself in his letter to the Romans, they are servants of Christ Jesus, called to be apostles set apart for the gospel. That is their commission. And therefore, they could ask to be strengthened to, to continue preaching the gospel with all boldness because they knew for certain that this was the work that God had prepared for them to do. This was the work to which they had been called. And so therefore, they could ask for what they needed to do the work that they had been given to do. And again, I think this teaches us something uh, significant about the petitions we ought to bring to
to our Heavenly Father. When we pray, we ought to pray for the strength and really all the resources that we need to do the work that we've been given to do. As you've heard me say many times, we we are not all called to be evangelists in the same way that the apostles were called to be an evangelist. An evangelist is is one who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a herald of the, the good news, and we are not all called or equipped for that work. But before you breathe too deep a sigh of relief, let me remind you of what you are called to. Every believer is called to confess Jesus Christ before men. Not all are called to be evangelists in the sense of one who who proclaims the full gospel, who who shares the gospel with with believers and unbelievers, but every believer is called to confess Christ as the reason for their hope. This is, this is what Peter has in mind in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he, when he says that every believer must be ready to give a defense for the reason for their hope. Peter's not suggesting that, that every believer needs to be equipped with all the, the best apologetic arguments. That's, that's not what he's saying. He is simply saying that every believer must be prepared to point to Jesus as the reason for their hope. They must be prepared to to confess Jesus before men. And this means that that whether you are called to be an evangelist or not, you can join the apostles in praying for boldness. We can can join them in in praying for the boldness that we will need, the, the courage that we will need to confess Christ as the reason for our hope, as the reason for our joy, as the reason for our peace, the reason for our love. When people who who struggle with anxiety want to know how you remain hopeful in such uncertain times, you need to be prepared to point them to Jesus. You need to be prepared to confess Christ as the reason for your hope. When people who, who struggle with depression want to know how you remain joyful in such dark times, You need to be prepared to point them to Jesus as the ground of your joy. When people who struggle with anger want to know how you remain peaceful in such turbulent times, you need to be prepared to point them to Jesus as the source of your peace. When people who struggle with bitterness want to know how you remain loving in such hostile times, You need to be prepared to point them to Jesus as the one whose love flows through you to others. And you know, you you know from experience that doing so is not always easy. It is not always easy to to confess Christ before men. For for any number of reasons, we may hesitate, we may demur, we, we may shut our mouths when we ought to speak. And so like the apostles, we need to pray for boldness. We need to pray that God would strengthen us with the courage that we need to confess Jesus as the reason for our hope. Because we are all called to confess Christ before men. But I think the apostles' prayer has application beyond just the courage we need to to confess him, to to remain bold witnesses. I I think their their petition really applies to all obedience. 
The Apostles' Prayer teaches us to to ask God for whatever we need for whatever good works He has called you to do. Not only the the good work of confessing Christ, but the the good works uh, uh, in every area of life. Are you a husband? Then you are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You can't do that on your own. Ask God for the resources you need to be the husband you have been called to be. Are you a wife you were called to, to respect and submit to your husband? Again, that is beyond your ability. You must ask God for the resources you need to do what you've been called to do. Are you a parent? You are called to raise your children in the strength and uh, in, in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Ask Him for the strength that you need to do it. If you're a child, you are called to honor and obey your parents. Ask Him for the strength that you need. And, and beyond just these, these areas of your life, whatever it is that you've been given to do, are you called to be a neighbor? Are you called to be a friend? Are you called to be a citizen? Whatever it is that you've been called to do, ask God for the resources that you need to fulfill the calling that you have been given. Because such prayers honor God. They, they honor Him in, in at least two ways. First, they, they honor Him by submitting to His calling. When we pray in this way, when we ask God for the the resources that we need to do the works that He has given us to do, we are acknowledging that He is our Master. That that we are not the captain of our own ship. that, That we are not the Lord of our own lives. But that He is. And that we will do the works that He has given us to do. And so such prayers are are an expression of the self-denial that Jesus calls every disciple to, the the denying of yourself to follow Him. We're saying, Jesus, the works You have prepared, those are the works we will do so long as You give us what we need. Give us what we need to do what You've given us to do. But not only do such prayers honor Him by by submitting to His calling, they, they also honor Him by acknowledging that He is the source of every good resource. They acknowledge Him by, by, by depending upon His provision. When we pray in this way, we are acknowledging that we do all things only in the strength that He supplies. He gives you the love to obey. He gives you the wisdom to obey. He gives you the, the strength to obey. Every resource that you need is from Him. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But through Him, we can do every good work that He has prepared for us to do. Nothing that He gives you to do will be impossible for you because nothing is impossible for Him. That's the reality that we are acknowledging when we pray, asking God for the resources we need to fulfill the calling that He has placed upon us. And so again, the the question before us is is obvious. Will we pray in this way? Will we pray acknowledging that God is our Lord and that He is the Lord who gives us every resource we need to serve His kingdom? This is the way that the apostles are are teaching us to pray by their example. But there's a a third petition here as well. We, We see it there in verse 30. The third thing that the apostles ask is for God to continue stretching out His hand to heal, to perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Now we understand why the apostles make this 
particular request in, in their particular situation. The signs and, and wonders that, that God had performed through them in the name of Jesus were, were vital to their ministry. It was by those signs that they were attested. It was by those signs that they were publicly validated as God's chosen and authorized spokesmen. And so they, they needed those miracles in order to establish their ministry. It's, it's parallel to what we see with Moses in the Old Testament. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, do you remember? He, he told him to go to Pharaoh and to, and to tell Pharaoh that he was to let God's people go. And Moses was a little hesitant, to, to say the least. He, he wasn't sure he really wanted to go. He, he didn't think that anyone would believe that he had been sent by God. He didn't think that anyone would, would believe that he spoke with God's authority. And so God gave him signs. God gave him, him wonders that would, would demonstrate that God had chosen him and that God was at work through him and was now speaking through his voice. First, he, he gave him a rod that would turn into a snake when cast upon the ground. He, he, he caused his hand to turn leprous and then be restored. And he caused water to turn into blood. And by these signs, God would show that Moses was his prophet. Well, in exactly the same way, the apostles were to be validated by signs and wonders performed by God through them. Just as, just as God had performed signs through Moses to, to show that he was his prophet, so God would perform signs through the apostles to show that these are the men whom I have chosen to speak for me. And so we, we understand why the apostles make this specific request. They want God to, to continue stretching out His hand to heal through them because such miracles established their ministry. Such miracles were essential to their calling as apostles. But of course that raises a, a question for us. Should we emulate the apostles in this request? Should, should we bring the same request before the Lord? Should we be asking God to perform miracles through the name of of Jesus? I think it's a fair question. It's a, it's a question that we have to ask. So let me, let me say a couple of things as we, as we try to get at an answer to this question. First, we have to begin by acknowledging that God is unquestionably still able to stretch out his hand to heal. God has not changed. His power has not changed diminished. He is still the sovereign Lord. He is still the creator. He is still the one who, who calls into existence things that, that previously did not exist by the mere word of his power. He is still the God of providence who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so whatever you think about the role of miracles in the church today, you must begin by acknowledging that God's absolute unqualified power to do whatever he pleases has not changed. If God is not working miracles today, it is because he has sovereignly chosen not to do so. It is not because he can't. And so the question is not whether God can still work miracles today. The question is, does God will to work miracles today? 
And to answer that question, we we have to return to what we were saying about the, the whole reason for these signs and wonders. As I said, these these signs and these wonders were, were in some sense, they were pictures of the coming kingdom. When when Jesus healed or when the apostles healed, it was a sign that that, that the the kingdom to come would be a a kingdom of restoration. It would be a kingdom where all things were were made new. It would be a, a kingdom where the effects of the curse and of sin and of death, that misery that we spoke about in our confession of faith, that that misery would be undone, that it would be eradicated. That creation would again be made whole. The, the miracles pointed to that reality. But more than that, they also pointed to the fact that these apostles were the ones who were authorized to proclaim that good news to the world. So the apostles had been chosen to deliver the faith to the saints once and for all. They are the foundation, as we heard in, in our call to worship this morning, they are the foundation upon which the church is built, with Jesus being the cornerstone. The apostles are the rock upon which Jesus is, is building his church. And so the, the signs and wonders that they performed, they allowed the people to, to receive their words, not as the mere words of man, Paul says, but as they really are, as the very words of God. And so the signs and wonders were connected to their ministry as the foundation of the church. And if that's true, then it follows that maybe we will not see the same kind of signs and wonders today that they saw in the first century. After all, once the foundation has been set, you don't keep building more and more foundation. Eventually, you start building upon that foundation. You start building upon the foundation that has been laid. And if the foundation has been laid and if the miracles were tied to that foundational period, then it follows that we might not see miracles today in the same way. This is what the people, if you've heard the word cessationist, this is is what cessationists believe. They they believe that certain gifts, such as healings and and miracles, and even the gift of apostles itself, that these gifts were associated with the foundational work of the apostles and therefore are not still active in the church today, not because God has changed, not because the church is apostate, but rather because we are in a different redemptive historical period, because the foundation has been laid and doesn't need to be relayed. The faith has been delivered once for all to the saints, and we are now building upon the foundation that is already there. And therefore, the foundational gifts are no longer active in the church. And I think that is basically correct. That is, that is what I believe. It's what uh, we believe here at Trinity. Yes, God can still work miracles. And yes, God does, on occasion, still work miracles. I think especially in those places where, where the, the gospel is making a frontline attack on unreached territory or, where, or there's a new work of the Spirit emerging. There, got, there are times when God does still work miracles, but in our day... It is not his norm because the foundation has been laid, because the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. And so while it's not wrong for us to continue to pray for miracles, it's not wrong for us to continue to pray for God to stretch out his hand and to do uh, amazing, wondrous things, we must make those prayers deferring to his wisdom, deferring to his timetable, recognizing that we live in a different era, That in this day, God is building upon a foundation that has already been laid. 
And so we do not see miracles today in the same way that they did, not because the church is apostate, not because the church lacks faith. God didn't do miracles in the first century because the church was so holy. God didn't do miracles in the first century because, because the church was so wonderful. God did miracles because it was his divine purpose to do them, because it was his divine purpose to establish and build his church. And he, and he does today what he chooses to do today to build his church to the praise of his own glory. And so think about what this might mean for our prayers today. As I said, it's, it's not wrong for us to, to pray for God to, to continue to do miracles. But more than this, I think what we are praying for is for God to do whatever is necessary for him to accomplish his purposes through us. For him to to grant success to our work of ministry here at the church. For him to to grant that the preaching of his word would not return void, but would would, would call people out of darkness into light. That those who who have been born into darkness would, would have light dawn in their hearts. That they would be granted faith. That they would be granted repentance unto life. That there would be a great harvest of the gospel through our life and, and testimony here in this community. If God wants to, that to include miracles, so be it. His will be done. But in our present age, our concern is not that miracles would be done, but that the purposes and the, the goals of ministry would be accomplished. That people would be called to faith. That they would grow up towards maturity in Christ. And may God do that according to His immeasurable power in the way that He sees fit. That's what we ought to be praying for. That's how we emulate the prayer of the apostles. We ask God to accomplish his purposes through us. We don't only ask him for the resources that we need to do his will. We ask him to prosper those efforts and to grant a harvest beyond counting to the praise of his glory. So this is what we see in the apostles' prayer. We we see three petitions. We see them asking God to look upon the threats of the council. We we see them asking God to to grant them boldness that they might continue to bear witness to the Son. And we see Him asking God to continue stretching out His hand that their ministry might be established. And each of these petitions teaches us something about prayer. As we've said, it it, it teaches us first that, that we must submit to God's will. It teaches us second that, that we must do the good works that God has given us to do. And it teaches us third to look to God to prosper those efforts to the praise of his own glory. And when you take all three petitions together, what you begin to see is that the common thread here is that the apostles are praying as servants. They they are praying as subjects of the king. And that is what we must emulate when we pray. We must pray as servants. When we pray, we must pray as subjects. When we pray, we pray for His kingdom, according to His will. Prayer is the means by which we enlist the immeasurable power of God. Not to do our own will or to get God on our train, but prayer is the means by which we ask God to act according to His will, to the praise of His glory, that we might participate in the good work that He is doing and will surely accomplish. And if you don't hear that as good news, if you think it's, it's somehow taking prayer away from you, that I, really I thought prayer was the means by which I got God to do what I wanted Him to do. 
If you think that, that making prayer subject to God's will somehow isn't God news, good news, then you need to recalibrate your thinking. Because think about it. Through Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord has called you into his service. Through Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, the, the King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, has enlisted you to serve his purposes. That is no burden. That is a privilege beyond imagining. You get to serve the king. But not only has God called you into his service, more than that, he has promised to give you everything you need to do the works that he has prepared for you to do. Not only has he given you work to do, he has provided you with every, resources and every resource necessary to do it. You get to serve the king with the king's resources. And because we have received such a calling, because such a privilege is ours in Christ, and because that privilege is, is accompanied by the promise that he will give us everything we need to that end, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we pray that you would teach us to pray, even as the apostles pray. Father, that you would teach us to pray as subjects, that you would teach us to pray as servants, that you would teach us to pray as those who have been given the privilege of serving the King. Father God, may we pray in such a way to the praise of your glory and our eternal good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.